through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It's great to start the new year today with you in the scripture. And as you heard, we're starting a new series. We just finished our Advent series last week, as Joe was referencing, that looked at the nature and the character of Jesus. We wanted to understand who is this God who came to earth as a baby to rescue his people. Today, our new series is going to ask, okay, now that we are his people, what does it actually mean to live as his people? And even more specifically, what does it mean to live as the people of God when he has embedded us in this larger society, surrounded us by people who are not the people of God? get some hints of that through the scripture. Could have seen some of that this last fall when we were studying the life of Abraham. Uh, one of the things that you notice is that Abraham never settled down. God gifted him all the land that he could see and he lived in a tent. Never built a house, never moved into a city. And you start to wonder why, why did he live the life of a wandering nomad? Book of Hebrews tells us that the reason chapter 11 verse 10 is that Abraham was looking forward to the city that had foundations whose designer and builder is God. How do you live among the nations? You live with an eye to the future. There's this city that God has built, and somehow that city out in the future controlled how Abraham lived in the present. It was more important, had more value to him than the surrounding nations did. Or you start to ask that same question. Jesus answers it a little bit in John chapter 17 as he's praying for his disciples. There's two little phrases that he has in two verses back to back. And you learn there that it has something to do with being in the world, but not being of it. In the world, you're conversant with the world. You're aware of what's going on in the larger world. You're engaged with the larger world. You're able to interact with people in a way that isn't odd, that doesn't make people cringe, that doesn't put them, push them away. You're in the world, but you're not of it. You're not given to its values. You're not given to its thought patterns. You're not given to its lifestyle. Somehow, God in his sovereignty has placed you in this world and called you to live here with a different set of values. You are in the world. You're not of it. And you realize that's a very hard combination to pull off. Much easier to separate and go out to, to the two ends of that uh, continuum. You can think here of what we call Christian ghettos which is our, those ways in which Christians separate themselves from the people around them to the point where they don't have any interactions with people who are not Christians. They don't know how to even influence their society. If you push off to that end of the continuum, you're what? You are effectively not in the world. But you can equally fall off on the other side. You can assimilate with society to such a degree, degree that there's no difference between your values and the society's values. No difference between what you do and what the society does. Effectively, if you go off on this end, you are of the world. 
how do you bring that together? How do you live in the world but not be of it? How do you interact with it while having this outside commitment that actually determines how you live here? That's part of what we want to see as we study the book of Nehemiah over the next several weeks. Nehemiah is not the, just the name of the book. It's the name of the person who wrote the book, and it's his account uh, of navigating how to live in the world but not be part of it. So you get a sense of him as an individual. You also get a sense of the community. You get a sense of the people of God, how they had God's heart for the community, how they had God's heart for the nation, even though the larger nations weren't always all that friendly toward them. Now let me just give a little bit of background so we can locate Nehemiah in time and space. You remember that God had a very special relationship with Israel. He had rescued them out of Egypt. He had brought them into their own land, settled them there, loved them, cared for them, took good care of them. And then over and over and over, the history of Israel is that they rejected him, that they wanted nothing to do with him. And you then get this back and forth for centuries where God continues to woo them, call to them, sends prophets to them, disciplines them, tries to win their hearts back to him. They continue to refuse to be faithful. And eventually God does what he said he would do. He allows another king to run over the, the nation. Nebuchadnezzar in 586 attacks Jerusalem, destroys the capital city, and deports the people. And the people are in exile, and they're in exile for a number of decades until another king arises, one that's also prophesied in the scripture. This king was actually from a different empire. He's from the Persian Empire. His name was Cyrus. And the Persian Empire took over from Babylon. And in 538, Cyrus made this decree that anybody who wanted to could go back to Jerusalem. And so the Jewish people started going back, and they trickled back over a number of years. They rebuilt the temple, started to rebuild the city until years later, we hear about another king in the Persian Empire, a man named Artaxerxes. He ruled between the years 465 and 425. And the first time we hear about him, he's commissioned a priest, Jewish priest, named Ezra. Ezra is to go to Jerusalem and instruct the people living there how to live according to the law of God. And Ezra is essentially a contemporary of Nehemiah. He precedes Nehemiah by about 13 years. But as Nehemiah is writing now, you're right in this same kind of time frame. Nehemiah actually dates it that way in that very first verse there in chapter 1. He writes, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel. And that 20th year would be the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. And so he's dating, saying this happened around 445 BC. In other words, he's writing to people who would be very familiar with a Persian system of dating. But notice, he references the month of Kislev. And you wonder, well, when is Kislev? If you translate Kislev to our Gregorian calendar, it'd be somewhere between November and December. But we're not the only ones who would need to have that translated for us because Kislev was not the name of a Persian month. Someone in the Persian Empire would not have recognized which month he was talking about because it's actually from the Jewish calendar. Now think about what you've just learned about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is able to use two different dating systems and he's perfectly at home with both. He's able to actually combine the two. And that gives you an important insight into who Nehemiah is and how he lives. 
He's very comfortable in his modern world, his contemporary world. But he's not sold out to that world. He's there as a member of the people of God, fully conversant with both worlds. You get that sense of him as you see things like the way that he dates, uses the calendar. You get that as he tells you that he was in Susa. Susa was the winter capital for the Persian monarchs. And you learn, if you read to the end of chapter 1, that he's actually there on business. Because Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. He's the one who would taste the, the wine before the king had it to see if there was any poison in it, which means that he's a highly trusted official in the Persian Empire. Nehemiah himself lives in two different worlds at the same time. He's a man of his own times. He's a cultured urbanite, lives in the capital city. He's high, high up in the political hierarchy of a pagan nation. If you think about it, he's a lot like somebody who lives in the suburbs of Philadelphia. He's worked hard. He's done well in his modern world. He's content. He works well. He's at home in the modern world. But he marks his days and his months according to the Hebrew calendar. His center of gravity, as you read through the book, you learn, is not dictated by Persia. His center of gravity is dictated by God. You see things like that in these small little in ways in his calendar. You're going to see that much more clearly as you look at what actually drives him. We'll look at two things today. One, we're going to look at what he's burdened by. And second, we're going to look at how he responds to what he's burdened by. So first, what he's burdened by. Then secondly, how he responds. First, what is it that burdens Nehemiah? What weighs on him? What, what's heavy on his heart? What concerns him? His brother and some men have come very recently from Jerusalem, about a thousand miles away on foot because he had to walk through the Fertile Crescent to get there. And when they get to Susa, Nehemiah wants to hear all the latest news of the people who have escaped exile. He wants to know how the Jews are doing who are now living in Israel. In verse 3, these men tell him some very bad news. They tell him the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned by fire. And as soon as Nehemiah hears this, the, this news, he sits down, he mourns, he starts to weep, he fasts, he prays for days. He's burdened by something. What is it that burdens him? It's that the people of Israel, this remnant, are in great trouble and shame. Why are they in trouble? Why are they shamed? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. You think, okay, that doesn't sound good, but why does it impact him so severely? Why, why is this devastating to him? You realize there's a backstory here. It has to, it, it, it's got to have more to do than simply with what Nebuchadnezzar did. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar broke down the walls, burned the gates. That was 140 years ago. Nehemiah is not responding to that. He's devastated by something that's right now in the present, something that he's not heard before. You start poking around and say, okay, well, what's the backstory here? Why is it having that kind of impact on him? And you find that backstory in the book of Ezra, that contemporary of Nehemiah's. And you learn there that Artaxerxes had given Ezra a good-sized sum of money told him to go offer sacrifices for the king, and then he was to use any remaining money on anything else that he thought wise. And so in chapter 4, you learn that Ezra had started to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Now, did he have an explicit royal mandate to do so? No, he was not charged to go and build the wall. 
but it was within the purview of what Artaxerxes had told him to do with any remaining funds. However, as the Israelites are repairing the foundation, finishing the wall in chapter 4, there are surrounding people who are not happy about this. Surrounding people who are actually Israel's enemies, and they appeal to Artaxerxes. And they tell him that Jerusalem is a wicked city that has a long history of rebellion, and that if you allow this wall to actually be completed, you're not going to get any more taxes. There will be no more tribute to Persia. Artaxerxes writes back, and he tells these people, these enemies of Israel, stop the wall. And so you learn in chapter 4, verse 23, that they went, quote, in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease, unquote. Force and power. They broke down the walls. They burned the gates with fire. That's what Nehemiah has just learned. He's not responding to ancient history. He's responding to a very real present danger. He just learned that Israel lost the goodwill of their royal patron. King Artaxerxes had been on their side. He had been a supporter of theirs. He had given to them very generously. And suddenly that's all been changed. Their enemies can now claim, we have royal backing, you don't. They're shutting down what God's people were doing. And the returned exiles are shamed. They've lost face. It looks like they overreached. They overstepped what they were permitted to do. It looks like they were actively setting up a rebellion against the Persian government. This is part of the great trouble that they're in, this political turnaround. But part of their trouble is also they still have no wall, which in their culture meant two things. First, obviously, it meant that they had no protection. They had no means of guarding their lives, no means of guarding their own property. Anybody could just run over top of them at any point in time. Nothing to keep enemies out. And so anything that they did for themselves, anything that they built, anything that they amassed for themselves could be destroyed. It could be taken from them, and literally in a matter of minutes. They had no protection. But secondly, they also had no means of regulating their interactions with other people. They had no way to control those interactions. See, a wall does more than just keep people out. A wall with gates allows engagement, but it allows some control over that engagement. If you don't have a wall with gates, then interaction is dictated by someone else. You have no way of saying, stop, <laughs> this is not okay. You may come this far and no further. Gates let you have engagement with your surrounding society without giving in to that society, without capitulating to that society, without being owned by that society. There's actually an example later on in chapter 13 of Nehemiah where we learn that after the walls have been built, after the gates are back in place, that there's lively trade between Jerusalem and people from outside. There's commerce, there's interaction with the larger world, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing for Israel. They are able to live well because of this interaction. It's a good thing for the outside world because the outside world now gets a taste of what it's like to be with the people of God. And so all of God's laws that regulated honest weights and, and good dealing with each other, the, the outside world is now getting a taste of that. It's good for both. But we learn in chapter 13 that the larger world wanted to set the terms of that interaction. And so they gathered outside the gates on the Sabbath day. Now, if you don't have gates, what happens on the Sabbath day? Those merchants just come right on in, and they tempt Israel then to disobey what God's told them about not buying and selling on the Sabbath. 
Israel needs some way of regulating those interactions, some way of preserving their own way of life, some way of not giving into the values of the surrounding society. So when Nehemiah back in Susa hears that the wall is broken down, that the gates are burned with fire, he realizes three things. He realizes that their enemies are much stronger than they had been before. He realizes that the Jews are still unprotected, and he realizes they have no way to moderate their interactions with that larger world. And so without a wall, without gates, they cannot live as the people of God among the nations. And Nehemiah cares about this. You have to get this picture in your mind. He's living a thousand miles away. He's living in a very cultured society. He is at the power center of his world. He's risen about as high as you can go in it. He has it made on so many different levels. But what captures his heart, what captures his attention, is what's happening to a small group of people a thousand miles away on the outskirts of the large empire. You think, why is that? Okay, yeah, it's not good for them, but why does it impact him? I mean, he's doing just fine, right? Regardless of what happens to them, you realize wrong. He's not doing just fine. It's because the real center of history is not in Susa. It's not in Persia, this mighty capital of this mighty empire. The real center of history is Jerusalem, this broken down city in, in a land that's been devastated by war. Nehemiah knows that God's redemptive plans to rescue humanity come through Israel. They do not come through Persia. He understands that if God's plans don't come about, then Persia and Susa have no hope. Then Nehemiah himself has no hope. And if that's the case, then Jerusalem has to be strong in order to give hope, not because the people there are any better, but because they're the ones that God has promised to work through. It's through them. You remember the promise given to Abraham. It's through them that God has said he'll bless all the nations. They're the remnant that God has promised to preserve, to bring down through history, because it's from them that he's going to bring a Messiah, this one who will save his people from their sins. See, God's purposes on earth move through Jerusalem. His purposes on earth move through the people who are living in Jerusalem and in Israel. So for those purposes to come to fruition, Jerusalem cannot be weak. She cannot be unprotected. Now you fast forward into our day and you realize the same is true today. God's plans do not rely on the power centers of our world. They don't rely on the national capitals. They don't rely on military might. They don't rely on the concentrations of economic wealth. God's plans rely on the church. His plans move through the church. You realize that the church, that God's people, are, are no longer this one small ethnic minority. Instead, Jesus has now broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile so that anyone who has faith in him, anyone who believes that he'll rescue them from their sins, is now brought into his family. They're brought into the church. And it's through the church that God continues his plan of rescuing his people. It's through the church that God calls his people back to himself. It's through the church that he strengthens his people and builds their faith and matures them. That means that when the church is weak, when she's unable to defend herself, unable to interact well with her society, 
when her walls are broken down and her gates are burned with fire, when she's weak, then the plans of God are stymied, they're hindered, they're threatened. And when you hear of where the church is weak, it should what? It should grab you, just like it grabbed Nehemiah. Now, this looks different in different contexts. There are some contexts where the threat to the church is very physical. It's very obvious. You can think about China from this past week. Pastor Wang Yi, founder of an a very significant underground church there, had been, had been arrested about a year ago. He was judged guilty in a secret trial this past week, sentenced to nine years in prison, penalties coming afterward. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo described the, the charges as trumped up. The enemies of the church there are what? They're really obvious. They have faces. They have names. They wear uniforms when they come to your house. They're powerful. They can run over top of the church. They disrupt her. They, they stop what she's doing. They threaten the plans of God. When you hear something like that, when it's that obvious, it should what? It should grip you. It should upset you. But there are other contexts that should also upset you. Contexts where the threat is not as obvious, where the threat does not come with a name or a face attached to it. I'm thinking here about places like Western Europe or in the US, places where you can look and see that the church is theologically immature or where she's intellectually unprepared to deal with the challenges of living in a secular society. In those places, it's harder to see the process. It's harder to see the walls being broken down and the gates being burned with fire. It's harder to see the process. It is easy to see the result. For instance, in the US, think about the high percentage of our young people who lose their faith when they go away to college. The researches va vary, but the researchers put the numbers somewhere between one half to two thirds of our youth walk away from the, their faith. Now, you can tell yourself, well, they probably didn't have faith in the first place. The reality, however, is that we in the church thought they did. They who lost their faith thought they did. Somewhere in between there, the church's walls are broken down. Our gates are burned with fire. Or you can look at the bigger picture. Pew Foundation put statistics out this past October, and they've tracked a rapid decline over the last 10 years in the number of people who call themselves Christians. In the last decade, the number is down 12%. 12% fewer people in the last 10 years call themselves Christians than did 10 years earlier. During the same period of time, the number of people claiming no religious affiliation rose just as dramatically. It's up 9%. 26%, a quarter of our country, says that they have no faith whatsoever. Now again, you can argue that what we're probably looking at are just nominal Christians, people who didn't really have a faith, but those numbers tell you something about the strength of the secular society which with, within which the church is embedded, and they tell you something about the weakness of the church, that we can have that volume of people in the church that don't really have faith. Or you could track how little impact the church has on society, how she used to be a source of cultural authority, a voice to be heard and respected, who's now treated as having very little to say to the social issues of our day. 
Or you can point to other statistics that say there's little difference between the morality of people in the church and the morality of people outside the church. You can start to think of how we've adopted many of the values of our society, our views and practices of sexuality. Or you can think about greediness, the misuse of power. Think about how those things are rampant inside the church. Or think about the difficulty that we have in interacting with secular beliefs. Think about how hard it is to defend, how hard it is to even talk about supernatural miracles in a scientific naturalistic age, like someone coming back from the dead. How hard it is to talk about that without sounding ignorant and uneducated and superstitious. Or think about how hard it is to claim Christ is the only way to God in this larger world that believes all religions are basically the same. Or think about how we struggle to talk to our homosexual friends or to those who are living together, or those who are experimenting with their gender, or those who are championing the right to choose. Think about how hard it is to talk to them without sounding judgmental and bigoted on the one hand, or endorsing and embracing their lifestyle choices on the other. Somehow, somewhere, the church's walls in America have been broken down our gates are burned with fire. We now live among very real enemies. We are not strong in internally. We don't interact well with our larger society. We look far too much like the surrounding society. We struggle to call them to something better. That's a church that cannot fulfill God's plans for her. She cannot call other people to the Lord. She cannot raise up people who are strong in their faith. That's the sobering news from this morning. The church in the U.S. is not strong. That should grip us, just like it gripped Nehemiah. And yet in this passage, there's hope. Because that same church, one whose walls are broken down, whose gates are burned with fire, that church does not have to settle for being like that. Situation for Jerusalem looks bleak. But there's a note here of something positive. Something else is involved. Something other than just Jerusalem. Something other than her enemies. Something other than Persia. It's very subtle. It's, it's, it's so easy to run over top of. It's in, there in verse 1. Listen again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now, it happened in the month of Kislev, and it's that fast, it's already passed. Now it happened. What's going on? Nehemiah is just going about the Persian affairs of state. He's minding his own business when now it happened. His brother and some other men just happened to come to Susa. They just happened to be coming from Jerusalem. They just happened to be in Jerusalem at the right time to notice that the Israelites were troubled, that they were shamed. They just happened that that news hadn't gotten to Nehemiah yet, that it was so new that it really crushed him. In other words, there's more involved here, something behind it all. Other religions, other philosophies call that fate. Secularists call it coincidence. It's more than that. It's from this small beginning, this now it happened, that Nehemiah is going to end up traveling to Jerusalem. 
He'll assess the damage firsthand. He'll make a plan to build up the walls. He'll rally the people of God to do that work. He'll see it through to completion, even though he's got all kinds of opposition coming against him. And so the now it happened turns into the means by which God's plan takes a full step forward so that there is a Jerusalem several hundred years later, a Jerusalem to which the Messiah goes, a Jerusalem in which the Messiah is sentenced to death. And then the Messiah who rises from the dead afterward. It's not fate. It's not coincidence. This is how God works. He works behind the scenes. And he works because he's promised to rescue his people and to do that by involving himself personally in history. That's the same God who sees the church in the U.S. Same God that promised he's never going to leave you or forsake you. The same God who promised that he would finish the work in each one of us that he started. The same God who promised to make his church pure and holy, without a single spot, without a single stain, without a single wrinkle. God's got plans for his church. He will involve himself to bring those plans about. The question is, how do we get on board with him? How do we get in line with what he's doing? How do we help strengthen the church? And the answer is not first. Here's a long list of things that you need to start doing. You're going to see that Nehemiah is a man of action. He's a man of energy. He does not start off by jumping up and doing a bunch of things. Instead, there are four ways that he responds. And those responses get him ready to do what he had to do. And they're the same four ways that you and I need to respond when we see or when we hear how weak the church is. Those four happen in verse 4. This is Nehemiah talking again after he's heard the news of what's going on in Jerusalem. As soon as I heard these words that his brother and, and other people brought, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. First thing that Nehemiah does is he feels the weight of what he's heard. He sat down. He hears that the people of God are in great trouble and shame, and it's too much for him. He can't just keep standing. He sits down. It's not interesting news. It's not kind of gossip that he just sort of bandy back and forth. It's crushing. This is something that he didn't see coming. He expected to hear that Jerusalem was doing fairly well, that they were fairly strong, able to engage with their society. When he realizes that Jerusalem can't, it impacts him. He can't stand up. In other words, he doesn't have an attitude of, oh man, that's rough. But you know what? God will take care of that. Whatever will be, will be. Instead, it devastates him. That's when you realize who he really identifies with. It's not the inhabitants of Susa. It's the people living in Jerusalem. He's personally affected by what he hears. He knows that there is no way for one part of God's people to be okay unless they're all okay because we're all part of one body. That means that you and I cannot say to each other, oh, I know that the church down the street's not doing real well, but thank God we are. We can't say that. For any local church to be strong, the church, capital C Church, the church has to be strong. And the church in the region has to be strong. Nehemiah gets that. And so he cares deeply about what happens to the people of God, even when they're halfway around the world for him. 
And he lets their situation burden him. Do you have that kind of concern for the people of God? That kind of burden? Does it bother you when you hear that the church has enemies? Enemies that want to destroy her. Does it bother you when you hear that the church is not strong? Does it bother you that she can't seem to figure out how to interact with the larger community that she's in? The first step toward helping her be strong is letting her weak condition affect you. Don't shrug it off. Let it weigh you down. Second way that Nehemiah responds is he grieves what he hears. He wept and mourned for days. He's not simply stunned in the moment. He allows himself to feel what he's feeling. He allows himself to keep feeling what he's feeling for days. Don't overlook that. He let himself be sad. People in the West, we don't know what to do with our emotions. We feel embarrassed when people see us cry. We don't want anybody to know that we're upset. And we'd rather run from our emotions than experience them. Nehemiah doesn't run. He doesn't look for something to distract himself. Doesn't throw himself into more work, find some kind of entertainment somewhere. Doesn't go off and buy something. Doesn't tell himself to get over it. He mourns for days. Let himself respond emotionally. Do you find yourself upset over the church? Does her weakness make you sad? Do you let yourself feel for her? Or do you quickly run off to something else and figure, well, you'll be okay anyway? If you want to help the church be strong, you first have to feel the weight of what you hear. Second, you have to let yourself respond emotionally. Third, make sure that you feel it even more. Nehemiah is not looking for an escape from what he's feeling. He actually makes sure that he's going to feel it more. He fasted. He cut out time in his day to think about what he'd heard, to meditate on it, ruminate on it, turn it over and over again in his mind, to not let himself forget what he'd heard. He's not looking for his emotions to get to that place where they sort of quiet down and go numb. He's making sure that they stay at that ramped up place. He's intentional. He did something so that he couldn't escape the impact that it was having on him. Do you do that? Do you make time to study the church, to see where she's strong, to see where she's weak? Do you read or listen to news articles that talk about the state of Christianity in the world when they come up on your news feed, or you just skip over them? Do you notice when our brothers and sisters are imprisoned, when they're murdered, do you study the research that comes out of these places, the Pew Foundation, George Barna, others that track faith in the world? Do you take note of political and ideological changes taking place in our larger culture that are going to make it difficult for us to li live out our faith? Have you set aside time to fast and pray over the condition of the church? If you want to help the church be strong, you first have to feel the weight. Second, you have to respond emotionally. Third, you have to reinforce those emotions. And then fourth, you have to do something productive with your emotions. Nehemiah is not simply feeling them. He's doing something positive. See, there's two bad ways to, to deal with emotions. On the one side, you can repress them. It's what religious people tend to do. We don't want to feel that stuff. 
on the other side, you wallow in them. You just let them wash over you endlessly, and, and you sort of get caught up in them. You feel them. That's how the secular world urges you to handle them. Scripture says there's actually a better way. You pray your feelings. You bring them before God. You let them be that catalyst that drives you to God to talk with him about what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. Realize God's the one who gave you your feelings in the first place. God is also the one who can actually do something about what it is that you're feeling about. He can do something about what's making you sad or angry or scared or frightened, depressed. So bring them to him. Let them drive you to him. Before you do anything for the church to make her stronger, you have to be impacted by her condition. You have to feel the danger she's in. You have to mourn it. You have to reinforce that grief. You have to pray. You have to have God's heart for his people. But what if you don't? What if you don't care? What if his heart for his people doesn't really move you? What if you're relatively content just living in the suburbs and you never think about the condition of the church? Or what if when you hear of something, it doesn't impact you? What if you're not Nehemiah? It's a very sobering moment to have to face. Because that's when you have to realize that if that's you, then you are part of the weak, vulnerable church that we're talking about. You're part of the church that isn't strong where you need to be. You're part of the church that's bought into the values of the surrounding society. It says it doesn't really matter if the church is strong or weak. Who really cares? You're part of the church that needs to be wept over before you can actually weep over others. And thankfully, you're part of the church that Jesus has not abandoned. See, Jesus does not turn away from you and say, oh, well, who cares? Plenty more people where you came from who do care about what I care about, so I'll just care about them. I won't care about you. Jesus doesn't say that. Here's the gospel. Jesus still cares about you when you don't care about what he cares about. Say that again. Jesus still cares about you when you don't care about what he cares about. That's the hope that's held out in Psalm 73, verses 25, 26. Psalmist is writing there about God says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I know it's late, but make sure you follow the logic here. The psalmist says, out of all the things on earth that I could desire, I only desire God until I don't. My flesh and my heart may fail. I might not desire God. I might want something more than I want God. I might want something on this earth. There might be something on earth that I desire more. It's the problem that you and I have when we don't care about the church, right? It's that we care about something more on earth than we care about God, more than we care about his purposes. The psalmist is not hopeless, though. He says, even then I'm not worried, because why? God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When my heart is weak, God still cares about me. And he will strengthen my heart. He'll transform my wrong desires. He'll build me up inside so that what? So that I can now care about the things that he cares about. 
That's exactly what Jesus did for you. Jesus was in heaven before he came to this earth. Not the center of the Persian Empire. Jesus was in the center of the universe, the capital of the universe. You cannot begin to imagine a more cultured place where he was. And he was not there serving the king. He was the king. And he left there. Why? Gave all of that up because he felt the weight of your defenselessness. Felt the weight of wanting better for you than you've ever wanted for yourself. And so he came to earth and wept over his people. He made himself look at them. Saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it bothered him. He sympathized with them. Prayed for them. Prayed for us while he was on this earth. And then he went on to the cross. Because ultimately you need somebody to do more for you than simply see you. And be sympathetic toward you and pray for you. Ultimately you need somebody to transform you. That's what he did on the cross. If we borrow from Ezekiel's words, he made a trade. He took your heart of stone, the heart that does not work right, the heart that does not care about the things that it ought to care about. He took your heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh instead. A heart that does work right. You're not going to get a better offer than that today. To have a heart that works the way that should, that cares about what it should, that cares about what he cares about. And to top that off, he put his spirit inside of you so that what? So that when your heart does drift away again, he's still the strength of your heart and your portion forever. So if you find yourself hard-hearted this morning, uncaring, go to him. Ask him to soften you. Ask him to fix you. Ask him to warm your heart. Ask him to make it, make it beat correctly. Do you really think they did everything that he did just to leave you in that hard-hearted place? You're the church that he came to build up. He cares that you would be strong. He cares that you would not be defenseless. Ask him today to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And he will. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do not own the keys to our hearts. We can't control ourselves. We can't control our desires. We cannot control what we long for. Lord, we come to you and we bring our hearts to you and we say, dear God, make this work. Because it doesn't. We don't care about your people like you cared about your people. We don't care about your people like you care now about your people. But Lord, our hope is not that we will figure out how to get ourselves there. Our hope is that you will change us, that you will strengthen our hearts, that you'll be our portion forever. And that, Lord, we too will grieve over your church, that we will long to step in and help make her strong. Lord, please do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.